0: We are in the condition we are in, in the state
1: of ignorance we are in, in the state of war, in the state of economic depression, in the state of depletion of the resources of our planet because of the greed of psychopaths who thought they could create their own reality. Well, look at the reality they created. You're listening to Behind
0: the Headlines on the SOT Radio Network, the world for people who think.
2: Welcome to Behind the Headlines on the Sat Radio Network. I'm Joe Quinn, and with me this week, as usual, is Neil Bradley. Hi, everyone. And our special guest is back again this week. Uh, the host of one of the hosts of the Truth Perspective on the SOT Radio Network, Harrison Healy. Hi, everybody. Wonderful. <laughs> Thank you very much. That's for Harrison. For turning. <laughs> Thank you very
3: much. That's for Harrison turning up. Good job, Harrison. <laughs> it was touch and
4: go there for a while.
3: Hey, but he, aren't you from the shores of Upper Lake Canada? I'm pretty close,
4: yeah. No, I'm, I'm closer to the shores of uh, to the, the, the southern shores of Middle Lake Canada. Middle Lake Canada, oh. Canada yeah. Do you ever see Relic? Uh, bumped, bumped into him a
3: few times. Oh, yeah? At yeah. The, mm-hmm. the local supermarket?
4: Yep. He's pretty old. He's pretty old, yeah. He sounds everybody old. Everybody
2: knows that. He's, I think he's too old at this stage.
4: Every time he sees oh, me, help. he kind of he, he runs away. He doesn't really like people in general. So. Uh, uh, I've never actually had a conversation with him.
2: <laughs> no. Probably best not to.
4: Um,
2: yeah, so this week on Behind the Headlines, what are we talking about? We are talking about, well, what do you think we're talking about? The state of the world, what's going on, all the stuff that actually matters. You know, the stuff that um, should matter to people or actually does involve people and does have a serious impact on people's lives but probably for most people it doesn't seem to matter to them. They don't really care very much. I'm talking about the the great unwashed here. Most people who obviously are not listening to this show, if you're a member of the Great Unwashed it's only clean people listen to this show. But um yeah, it's just a strange thing that um it seems that the world can go to hell in a handbasket fairly rapidly as it has done over the past few years. And most people seem content to just carry on as if nothing is happening, as if nothing has really changed. But if you cast your mind back 10, 15 years, let's say pre nine eleven, 11, so we're just talking late nineties, uh, and look at the world now compared to then, you'll see that things have changed enormously. You're still able to go to your job. You still have a roof over your head and you can still feed yourself. But in terms of the planet on which you live and the conditions on that planet, chaos that now reigns compared to them, it's just, it's a different world. It's almost like a different reality, really. But I think because people have been eased into it to a certain degree, all the way along they've been given plausible narratives to explain it all they tend to be accepting of it and I, I think they generally think
5: it's
4: it's just the way the world is it's just normal it's just and it's the way things have been and so every day when a new story comes out it's just more of the same so it's just normal mm-hmm. i want to qualify something you said though not contradict you i'll
3: qualify it a little
2: it's not allowed to contradict. <laughs> <laughs> so
3: lucky. and you don't get zero response from people you often get a response to the individual event or issue. In other words, people are responding to stimuli, but they're not responding to a coherent, bigger picture. Mm -hmm. Uh, Well, not everybody either. I'd say, I mean, you
2: have to break it up. We can't kind of be be, be black and white about it, I suppose, or or generalize too much about it. I think there's people like people who listen to the show and people who who read chat.net and keep up with that, at that level and then there are people <clears throat> who generally are aware but don't uh subscribe to the kind of worldview that we do but are generally aware of things not being cool in the world and i think they're also a minority but then uh further down the line in the <clears throat> the you know the the lower let's say i don't know i'll put a figure on the lower 60 percent are people who are only vaguely aware of what's going on uh, here I'm imagining and these are people who basically go to the work their whole life, centers around where they live, their family, their job, and going to the pub
5: mm-hmm.
2: on weekends and getting drunk and come back home and then rinse and repeat week in, week out. And generally don't uh, even pay attention to what's going on in the news. Uh, most people, uh, speaking of kind of my generation and looking at my Facebook friends, my peers, uh, it seems that the thing that... Uh, I mean, I don't know if Facebook is a good litmus test, but I suppose it's, it's not a bad one. Uh, based on the people that I know, my peers uh, are on Facebook, they're not interested. I don't get to talk to them very much, but uh, based on what they're posting on Facebook, they're certainly not interested enough in what's the kind of stuff we're talking about, the, the big picture stuff, to actually post about it on Facebook. Uh, what they post about on Facebook is their home life, their families, their jobs, or their hobbies in particular, their their, their pastimes, their leisure activities, you know. Uh, a lot of people are into sport. A lot of people spend, a lot of men from my generation seem to be, some, to one extent or another, addicted to football, soccer ball, soccer in Europe. Uh, it's probably very similar for people my age uh, and, and older and younger in the U.S. It seems that sports is extremely important to these people, and every mm-hmm. almost every spare spare moment of their of their time is spent focusing on or watching or talking about. Um, so these kind of people fill their lives. Between yeah, obviously they have most of them have a job and some kind of family that takes up quite a lot of time, but all the free time, the rest, the other twenty thirty percent of free time they have, seems to be just. Dedicated to dissociation. Uh, Sporting, kind of a lot of people into video games or going and getting drunk. Uh, So and in a normal world, if nothing else is happening in the world, that might not be so bad. But um, when there's all this stuff going on that does have and will have increasingly an impact on people's lives, it's not a good idea to be have so many things that can distract you and or have your life set up in such a way where you are very parochial in your outlook. You basically don't really recognize or, uh, or you're not aware of uh, very much outside of your little uh, milieu, which, like I said, is normal for human beings. And all, all else being equal, it's not a problem. People tend to stay uh, close to where they brought up or... Or if they've moved to whatever, they stay within a relatively local, small community, and they engage with people around them, and that becomes their life, and that's the way it should be. But pff, it's a bad thing when it's used as a as a distraction or something to focus on, to the exclusion of serious stuff going on in the world. But then maybe I'm being too idealistic, and it's too much to expect people to care about that kind of stuff because it is not really nice it doesn't it's not like anything kind of that'll make you feel good or happy or uh,
3: yeah and they'll uh, tell you well what can i do
2: uh, what can i do as well you know yeah so yeah so what so but anyway that's just uh that's
3: that's what's wrong with the world sooner or later though they will have one or the other pulled away from them their yeah. food or their sports right Probably both at the same time. Maybe at the very last minute, I think. Yeah, it would be late in the game. Late in the match. Late in the match, yeah. <clears throat> a last minute uh, substitution. Upset. <laughs> <Last>
2: minute <laughs> upset.
3: And it all goes pear-shaped.
2: Um, yeah, because you think that uh, that kind of a, a life of dissociation and of focusing on your your local community and your local local events and or even more local in terms of family and just close friends, whatever. uh, Certainly that would seem to be useful to the powers that be, Mm -hmm. as we call them, in the sense of they're quite happy to be doing all of their nefarious deeds um, without anybody paying attention. They'd probably prefer that most people don't pay attention um, to what they get up to, you know. Of course, there are a significant number of people who do pay attention and they spin the story and manipulate and lie and all that kind of stuff. But uh, I think the majority of people aren't paying attention. Those that are paying attention are being bullshitted by these politicians. And the only thing, the only, the one thing they do want to get most people's attention uh, focused on is periodic kind of terror attacks or traumatic kind of events uh, um, the things that, remi- that the things that threaten
4: that right. tiny world that they live in, yeah,
2: to make them kind of yeah. kind of like a primitive defense mechanism or a Pavlovian kind of reaction where they just uh, retreat back into their shell, terrorized type thing. Of course, the the media, mainstream media provides, uh, and mainstream television uh, provides a lot of distraction for these people as well. Mm-hmm. That's the other thing I didn't mention. Uh, in case anybody was wondering, I forgot to mention uh, TV. Mm-hmm. I mentioned sports, but TV plays a massive uh, part in most people's lives, where it's not—I don't think it's unreasonable to say that the average person in this world, and this is probably 60, 70 percent, maybe more, people are getting up, going to going to a, a job, coming home, eating, sitting in front of the TV for the next x number of hours, falling asleep, going to bed, getting up, over do that five days a week. Uh, Saturday, watch sport all day in your pajamas, scratching your belly, uh, drinking beer that night, go out, get drunk with your friends. Come home, fall asleep, wake up Sunday, recover with a hangover on Sunday, Monday, back to work. Repeat, 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 repeat until you die. There's not a lot of room there for anybody to even have the energy to care about what's going on in the world.
3: I think a lot of people do that.
0: Mm
3: -hmm. That's a lot of people's lives. Yeah, it's it's a waste. If I can cast a judgment on it. I mean, I've lived it Mm, briefly.
2: Loved it, mate. Loved it.
3: <laughs> no, I didn't. <laughs> I didn't love it. It just never... No. I thought, oh God, am I going to do this just forever? No. Ah. no. No. No, no. I can't. I, I felt I felt I couldn't be... I don't know. This is where I come back to something we talked about a couple of weeks ago. Differences in people. Um, something happens in the world and I think we respond differently to those stimuli. The most response you'll get out of people is if you hammer them enough with one particular theme in the media, you'll get maybe a third of them. This is this is something that actually increases the chaos on the planet even worse than if those people were just neutral on the sidelines in their appropriate world. They will actually feed into it by saying, yeah, isn't that awful what X is doing to his people?
0: Mm-hmm
3: tacitly giving their support for the launch of airstrikes or whatever it is, and increasing the chaos, which is actually encroaching on their little parochial world. They don't They don't know that, of course. So in a way, it's worse when they pay any kind of attention. But they only do that when it's been hammered enough for them mm-hmm. say, over some particular issue. Mm-hmm. So they're only kind of brought out, they're wheeled out almost. Uh-huh. When does an opportunity to create more chaos,
0: yeah,
2: like if by feeding their brains full of uh full of lies and nonsense and misinformation and
4: the t v the t v programming and movie programming it just it, it prepares the ground for those responses uh there's an article on SOT several weeks ago on just how many movies Hollywood movies are uh, have their scripts like checked and approved by intelligence military intelligence, mm. and they have ratings for the different criteria that they look for in these movies and they say oh well this one needs a little more you know Burrah or whatever and, and this one's and, a little yeah. un-american
0: yeah and,
4: you don't want any
2: programming to be un-american i mean talk about it. i mean that's pretty common for most uh most people um know that um maybe not a lot of people know what you've just said but a lot of people uh, ordinary people in the u.s seem to have that idea of something being un-american mm-hmm. um I wonder, do they realize that that phrase is quite common, but it doesn't have any... Um,
4: actual meaning?
2: <laughs> well, no, not that it doesn't have any actual meaning, but it doesn't have any corollaries in other countries around yeah. the world. There's no such... I mean, you don't hear that's un-British, you know, or un-Irish, or it's not a common phrase that can be transplanted to any other country. There's something about that un-American thing that is that's just... Uh, Very American. Well, it's very American, yeah. It's yeah, yeah. You know, uh, USA, 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 that kind of thing. And it's um...
3: the British tried to reintroduce it. Yeah. Over a span of some months, there, I think coming up to the elections in the UK, they had a lot of articles going out about British values. Our uh, values are under threat. It was never really spelled out under threat. By whom or by what? But between the lines, you were supposed to think, oh, by those uh, Islamists. Mm-hmm. But they wouldn't quite say it. They were trying to anchor it as if it had a basis, a concrete centre of a gravity uh, mm-hmm. of its own. Well, to be British, to have British values. Well, what what are they? Well, um, Parliament, uh, the Queen. Uh, you know, they would then struggle when, when you... Yeah. But they just talk as if there were these things that had mm. some basis. And everyone agrees, right? You, you don't yeah. want to be against British values, no. right? Can you no. be unpatriotic? What about... But no, I yeah. point to you, it. doesn't anchor like... It, no, like America, it everyone was, right right? I know what you're talking about. Yeah, yeah.
2: It's un-American, you know. It's um, as if there's um, some set of values that, uh, that actually define... What American is,
4: and that are exclusively American. Yeah, I mean, what about talking about saying, "Oh, that's that's not human." No. And how about broadening the, the perspective a bit? Because, well, you can't do that, of course, because America, Americanism, the American empire is founded on American interests, which are to a large extent exclusively American. Uh-huh. And so, to talk about anything universalizing or about humanity in general. Will automatically uh, exclude a lot of American interests. So you can't talk about human values. You can't say that something is mm. just plain un- inhuman, because that's you know automatically it it takes out the foundation um, from what you're for what you are professing or what you want to achieve mm. as you know the American Empire.
3: And so uh, the reason we didn't do the show, huh, is not at all to convince anyone anything people come and listen because they want us to share what we think about what's going on in the world but in in addition to that i mean from our own motivations our selfish motivations for doing it are to understand how things work okay so we can discount you know the great unwashed our own motivations for doing the show are selfish in the sense that, uh, not not the show per se, but the reason why we research, do what we do. want to understand. Why did that happen? Is mm-hmm. it a pattern. What is he saying here? What's he getting at? No, looking at the details uh, is because you can reach an objective understanding of the world as it is, how it came to be, and see patterns in the past, likely scenarios of the future, and so on. So, the value of Paying any kind of attention is to understand rather than to change. You know, you don't want to be an activist. You don't want to uh, change the world. Change the world. That's it. That's it. I mean, that's that's.
4: that's uh, but on the other hand, that's probably the only the only way anything in the world would actually change is to have people paying attention and looking at things. Right. Well, it's difficult to do that, you know? Yeah. Especially in
0: uh,
2: um, in the kind of world that we live in. And it's always been this way. It seems that, uh, you know, you have these pathological evil types that for some reason always rise to the top. Well, we know the reason why, but they rise to the top in, into positions of power over other people. Then they create a and utter mess, a horrible mess of the entire planet lots of suffering and death and people are then expected to pay attention to that. Well, no thanks. I'd rather pay attention to you know uh, football. A dog vomiting or something you know what I mean? It's, cats. Uh, or cats fighting maybe, you know because um, it's less traumatic than watching the kind of stuff that's going on in the world and uh, yeah, that kind of plays into um, it's It's not even, obviously we're not too desperate about any kind of control system on this planet, our power on this planet would plan to do it that way let's create lots of violence and horrible suffering and death on this planet so that no one pays attention but it's a natural function of it Uh, it seems to feed back into the increase in chaos because no one is paying attention because it's too unpleasant to look at so you look away and then the chaos and suffering and death and horribleness can continue uh, with impunity to a large extent so yeah That's all very interesting. but um...
3: I'm, I'm getting deja vu. I can remember just a few months back coming into a show here and just having heard the breaking news that Syriza won 144 seats in the Greek elections, mm-hmm. which happened about 40 minutes ago. Mm-hmm. What, the same number of seats? Yeah. No. I think it's right. I think they were six short of a majority when they won in January. And they've got the same results in snap elections in Greece. So no change there. Not that it mattered anyway what would have happened.
2: Well, so Cyprus is back in then?
3: Yes. Cyprus and Theresa
2: are back in. Um, more than likely. Which is... I don't know what the point is. It's a bit, there's a point of very low a relatively low uh, turnout in the uh, in terms of um motors. And you can imagine that people are just whatever at this stage, you know what I mean? They would just feel feel like they've been so screwed over um, that uh that's just not worth their worth their time anymore for a lot of people, you know.
3: No. Well the German finance minister told them, look, you can't expect us to change the way we do things. Every time one of you out there in Europe vote in a different government, the message being it doesn't matter who you vote for. Mm-hmm. You're a part of a big... This is the way it's going to be. Not the EU collective. It's the EU
2: board collective, controlled by the central hive mind. And you can't have any one... The whole point of a board collective is that they all they all uh, do the same thing, right? They all walk in the same way. They all follow the same script over and over again. So you can't uh, have that, you know. It's it's a definition of centralized power, you know. It's not decentralized. Centralized. The European Union has been about centralizing power within these twenty eight the twenty eight member fraternity. and the big, the biggest and strongest nation states, Germany in particular, uh, calls the shots. They have the most money, they have the most clout, so they tell all the other smaller countries what to do. And if you don't like it, tough. You signed up. You didn't read the small print when you signed up. Sorry, you should have. Did you not get the memo? The whole point of this whole EU thing was to take away all of your sovereignty. Yeah, sure. We talked about, you know. You know, community values and European community values of, of, um, you know, open borders and and sharing of of culture and sharing of trade and sharing of economics. That was the selling point, but it shouldn't have taken too much smarts to realize that uh, a plan to take 28 formerly sovereign independent countries and join them all together. where by definition there would be a a hierarchy based on economic weight and and size of a country. Uh, And that, obviously, in a hierarchy, there's going to be people at the top and people at the bottom, and the ones at the bottom get told what to do. Basically, you're losing power and sovereignty. I mean, you're giving up your sovereignty. I mean, it's it's a no-brainer. You give up your your sovereignty, sovereignty to a large extent to join the EU. So... Uh, you take what comes with that. Of course, they're only kind of pulling the veil back now, you know, to a certain extent, uh, particularly since 2008 with the whole economic crisis and all that kind of business. But <clears throat> it's become clear to a lot of, uh, particularly the smaller, but not even the smaller ones, like Spain as well, Spain, Portugal, Ireland, Greece, Italy, Um And the the newer Eastern European states, it's become clear to them since 2008 in the so-called financial crisis that what they have effectively sacrificed by joining the EU. Mm -hmm. And it was a bit, uh, but once you're in, that's it. You've given up, This is what Greece found out uh, a couple of months ago, you know. Once you've sold your soul, essentially, and given up and taken on the euro, taken on economic, uh, uh, joined the monetary union taking the euro as your currency, well, then you're basically owned. lock, stock in and there is no way out.
3: So why are we talking about the EU again? Because uh, the Greeks just held elections.
2: That's right. And that's why people... So the Greeks saw a couple of months ago that they were screwed, basically. They had no sovereignty. They had no power, no control. In the home, supposedly, or the country that gave the world democracy, uh, democracy was exposed. And Europe, its name. And Europe's name, the uh, democracy and Europe was exposed as a fascist sham, and now they're expected to go and vote again using the same democratic principles within the EU, and expect that what something different is going to happen this time. I mean, I'm surprised anybody went out to vote. It'd be interesting to get, get the numbers of people who went out to vote because it'll give you a good idea of who was actually clued in and like the percentage of this Greek population who, who have a clue and... Prepare it to the
4: elections earlier in the year.
2: And the idealists, the, the hope, hopeless yeah. idealists who still go out to vote. Um, really, I mean, why why wouldn't people just walk away from the, that at this stage? Just go, I don't care. Mm-hmm. You've made it very clear in the past few months to us, the Greek people, that what we say and what we want does not matter at all. So why do we vote? Just go ahead and do your thing do your kind of like, you know, power broking, kind of manipulation behind the scenes, backroom deals, whatever. Go ahead, you've been doing them all along. You want us to rubber stamp your, your, your faux democracy bullshit? I mean, really? I mean, we all saw that. You, this is basically a kind of mafia organization, and there's no democracy in a mafia. And so
3: there you go. I think that's it. They want they want people's permission. Permission to what? To continue to? Yeah, to do what they do. That's why the West uses democracy as a vehicle for totalitarianism, which is what it's tending towards. Democracy is, is the ideal they've ended up with after sieving through all the other various ways of working in totalitarianism. Democracy is perfect because you can periodically just check in for their permission to carry on. Yeah, of course, it's under the guise of offering them a change of policy, but people vote in the party to change, and they get the policies that were the same before, only usually a factor of two worse.
2: You're not getting the permission to be corrupt. What you want is them to rubber stamp your corruption as legitimate democracy or as some kind of, uh, you know, you want them to, to provide the people the vote from the people to provide a veneer of legitimacy to an otherwise absolutely illegitimate yeah, uh, so humanitarian wars,
3: austerity, which is theft and, you know, killing people. We want you to say, yes, we can. Okay, thank you. We will now carry out those policies on your behalf without telling you. <laughs> by, t-
2: with, by <laughs> telling you that we're going to do something else.
0: Yeah.
2: Yeah. So, uh, yeah, they got 55% actually. 55% of Greeks they got... voted. So only a little more than half the population actually voted or half the electorate, actually went out to vote. And um, Golden Dawn came third, and they increased their uh, parliamentary seats by two to 19 seats mm-hmm. from uh, January. Uh, Syriza was first with 145 seats, and last January they got 149. They've actually dropped four dropped seats a okay. since Good. last, since they were actually elected in January.
3: So yeah. Um, so Syriza could just, for the hell of it, just go into power with Golden Dawn.
2: Do That'd want. be an
3: interesting combination.
2: The no, whole thing's a scam, a sham, a flim flam.
3: So uh what then any hope for for old Blighty with this new Labour Party leader?
0: Oh, Britannia.
3: He's Britannia like he's like the of London. He's he's J C. Jeremy
2: Corbyn. My God, I never thought of that. (laughs) Really? It's a sign. It is.
3: He's Jesus Christ. Mm
2: -hmm. A socialist Jesus Christ, which Jesus Christ was, obviously. He was the first socialist. Mm -hmm. And that's supposedly a Jew to boot. Oh, I haven't heard that one. Who? Jesus? Oh. (laughs) No, not not Jeremy Corbyn. (laughs) Jesus was a Jew. Yeah. Uh, whatever that meant back then,
3: mm-hmm. socialism was popular among the Jews. Very popular.
4: Mm-hmm. Well, is there any? Well, in Greece, there was a big feeling of hope, and that something could change, and that you know maybe we've got a chance with this new leadership. And of mm-hmm. course, that was just, you know, it was it was exposed as a total sham, like you guys have just said. So, what's going on in the UK? Like, is Well,
3: inside their own parochial bubble, uh, as if forgetting what they did sort of just witnessing Greece, Uh uh, they didn't even elect a new leader. They just, some of them elected Mm -hmm. a kind of Cyprus in the sense that he's a radical left, complete break from the the right wing, predominantly right wing Mm -hmm. direction. The British two-party system has done just as in the US and probably Canada too. That's all that's happened. A leader of the opposition, yeah. and but I'll tell you, the reaction of the British establishment <laughs> is way over the top. Yeah. I mean, these guys are giving—maybe that's maybe that's kind of a reverse psychology. They're giving hope to people by freaking out mm-hmm. and having op-eds in the Guardian warning the left, the left readership of the Guardian that Jeremy Corbyn is a threat to national security.
2: Mm-hmm. He's an old-school uh, socialist type from the, uh, you know, kind of. 70s, 80s, old school labour, what labour supposedly was was originally meant to be, which was a working class people's party that was all about um, state ownership of major industries and uh, the health service and free health care, nationalisation of railways, electricity, roads, all that. Mm
0: -hmm.
2: Uh, Basically state control over all of that and state workers working in it and sharing in the profits, all that kind of stuff. It's all... uh, it's all good, you know, uh, to a large extent, but it's totally impracticable impracticable at this point, because um, it, it's moved on. I mean, yeah, he, he, the time for Jeremy Corbyn was back uh, would have been as a, an opponent to Margaret Thatcher, mm. and to for for Margaret Thatcher to be assassinated or something, and Jeremy Corbyn to take power in a, in a socialist coup. Does that exist a socialist coup? <laughs> and uh, and and to impose all of that all at the time, you know, but that would have never ha- never happened because. Um, you're talking about a, a hierarchical structure here in the UK and on the planet, essentially, and they feed all of the wealth upwards. And socialism is essentially largely the opposite of that, you know. So the people really in control of the UK and other countries obviously would never have allowed that to happen. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's interesting in the sense of it's uh, the election of Corbyn as the Labour Party leader. Who will therefore contest the next general election? Possibly be minister in 2020 mm-hmm. when everybody on the planet will be more or less dead. Uh, well, we don't know, but you know it could happen. You never know. Yeah. Um, it's interesting that there's so much support for him, basically from I can't get the impression that it's from across the, the spectrum. You know, even. There's a lot of uh, kind of lefty British kind of type people, a lot of Labour supporters and uh, a lot of um, Labour Party left Labour Party supporters. I mean, Tony Blair was supposedly a, a lefty, but he destroyed the values and he overturned and reversed the values of the Labour Party and made made it more like a right wing fascist warmongering kind of a party. So a lot of people through those Blair years and because of Tony Blair himself being the Antichrist, um, didn't look good to a lot of people and made a lot of Labour Party supporters or voters uh unhappy. So there's a lot of support for going back to traditional Labour Party left values. Um, so I think a significant major a significant percentage and possibly even a majority of the British electorate would prefer uh to see Jeremy Corbyn as Prime Minister than for example David Cameron of the Conservative Party, mm-hmm. uh who is a Prime Minister at the moment. But it's all a bit um I mean you look at Corbyn and he's just he he, he looks apart as well. I mean he's he's not exactly statesman like he's got the. Uh,
4: the open he, shirt button. He won't he, he
2: he has an allergic reaction to ties mm-hmm. or suits of any significant uh, sartorial Uh, significance Um, he prefers the tweed jacket and the pants and
3: our shorts he has a beard he has a beard he's a beardy he's a a bit of a hipster and he sympathizes with with terrorists with other beardy Muslim types Mm -hmm. yeah well the beard
2: marks him out as a a socialist Muslim um, terrorist so um, yeah it's kind of strange in the sense that it's interesting that there's a lot of support for that which is a reaction largely against the warmongering, bullshit, slimy, pusillanimous, manipulative nonsense that uh, have been forced down the throats of the British population for for up uh, pro- going back to really ninety seven now since Tony Blair since he became basically right, turned the Labour Party into a right wing since, since nineteen seventy nine. Well, but particularly since. Uh, 97 because 97 was Tony Blair when Tony Blair was elected and people thought this was a swing back to Labour, but it wasn't. It was a swing <clears throat> to the right and warmongering and destruction of the National Health Service and destruction of the, effectively, of the welfare state uh, and uh, privatisation of a lot of um, infrastructure in the UK. Um, so particularly since then, people have been, uh, you know, particularly leftists have uh, been unhappy um and you went from Blair Street into a, a conservative um, dominated government that, that we have today. Um, so I think it's those, how long is that? 18 years?
0: Is that 18 years? Mm-hmm. Jesus Christ.
2: 18 years of warmongering in the UK, and people have finally had enough, and it's a, a reaction against that. Um, but it's too little too late and I think it's kind of the wrong person really you know you would need someone Corbyn can't come out as this hardcore socialist I'm going to change everything around and you know people might want that it would be a good thing but he cannot run on that kind of a ticket
3: uh, he said he has no intentions of taking Britain out of NATO of no. not invading Syria of et cetera. Et cetera. maybe he's saying some well, of these things because it's politics he's been hard he's been down on the Syrian business he said quite clearly that you know
2: Bombing Syria isn't a isn't a good idea, and he's talked about.
3: Uh, well, there's different noises coming out of them now. Mm, Maybe not him, but well, it depends, you know. But he,
2: um, I think, what would be required of someone to turn around British politics, turn it away from the long, the many years, many decades of of, a, of a fascist of British politics uh, turn it around turn it away from that you would need someone of more political stature not some kind of backbencher socialist guy who likes to wear uh, you know dodgy suits and talk about banning nuclear weapons and stuff like that he's a peacemaker uh, or at least that's his profile uh, a man of the people type thing he can't just be a man of the people he has to be a statesman who behind the scenes is a man of the people someone more like Putin, basically, someone who knows the system, has the connections, can work within the system, has been brought up through the system. Corbyn all all along has been someone who has tacitly rejected the system and tried to, you know, stay out of it, essentially. No cronyism, no kind of, uh, you know, no pandering to the snobby British elite and all that kind of stuff. But he would have had to have done that and ingratiated himself into those circles. And then from within there to, to... gather allies, allies mm-hmm. and effectively stage a kind of a coup from within yeah. using a lot of those yeah. resources. he can't do it from the bottom, from T-Boy, basically. Once they, once
3: they know your 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 cards. Yeah, and he's, he's
2: exposed himself. So he's,
3: he's a populare, but he he's mm-hmm. you no know. Caesar.
4: Yeah, every, every once in a while you might get someone who comes into a position of power like that who does prove to have certain good leadership capabilities or talents and may even prove him or herself to be someone that could be a good leader but when they when those qualities show themselves and if that person is not already like you're saying a part of that system and hasn't made um great uh, strides within that community mm-hmm. then they're marked out at that point mm-hmm. and then they're taken out so yeah. That's even if you've got all the makings of a good leader, if you're a good person, even if you've got all the all the possibilities, all the potentials for strategy or whatever, if you don't already have it, uh-huh. then you're not going to get it.
2: No, exactly. You're not going. The door's going to be closed on you. I mean, he talked about taking. Uh, he's made. Um. There's a nuclear submarine program. Uh, which is uh it's based I think it's based up in Scotland actually. This ties into the Scottish independence to a certain extent, but uh Corbin has been he's been a lifelong anti nuclear weapons campaigner. And so obviously he brings that to his position right now and um he's been talking about or in the past anyway he has talked about ending uh the British nuclear submarine programme. Uh, as, a, as a way to kind of scaling down or scaling back nuclear proliferation and the threat of nuclear war, so I mean that in itself highlights or uh, kind of uh, marks him out as an idealist, uh, a kind of somewhat unrealistic, uh, or I'm having an unrealistic view of the situation. But it's interesting because a senior, apparently a senior, an unnamed senior general in the British military, has threatened that a government headed by Corbyn would face a mutiny if he ended the nuclear submarine program. The said, generals, yeah. Uh, yeah. An unnamed British general has said that. They basically said that, uh, that that they would stage a military coup. That would be great. I would love to see that. A military coup in the UK. But he said that the, he would say he would face mass resignations at all levels within the military if he took any, any steps towards dismantling or scaling back Important, uh, the crucial aspects as the military said of the, mil- of the British military, uh, specifically funding for British military's Trident submarines, or if he were to leave NATO, they would have a, have a. He said the general staff would not allow a prime minister to jeopardize the security of this country. I should be reading this in a posh English accent to me. And I think people. I don't do this posh for, <laughs> Go on, dude, <dear>, <laughs> Whatever means possible. Fair or foul to prevent that. So an interesting point there, fair or foul. And he would use whatever means possible, fair or foul, to prevent such a smelly man as Jerry (laughs) McCorbyn from destroying the great British military.
3: I can go you one better. A named British general, in fact the head of the British military at the moment, whose name I don't remember, but it's it's public. Gave a talk recently to, to the Chatham House crowd, which is basically the British Intelligence Institute, their think tank at the top. Um, and he said he was mincing his words, but to the effect, you know, when we, there's a time coming when really democracy is going to be a problem for us. So how, how do we get around that? You know, he's talking to them like, you know, do you get what I'm getting at here? If the people make the wrong decision, well, we we just have to suspend. Suspend uh, democracy. Basically. Time out for all you Democrats. Mm-hmm. You're in the naughty chair. So that's why I like Corbyn, because he's got them going and doing crazy stuff. Well, well again... And it's... the more crazy st- they do, the happier I am.
2: Yeah, but that's again, it, it, it reminds me again of, of the... Greece, the Greek crisis earlier on this year, and, uh, and what we said pretty soon afterwards was the whole point of it. It was not, people should not get their hopes up and think, oh, finally, the good guys are going to win and take over the world and make everything better, and it's all going to, and then, oh, no, they failed again. Oh, I'm so depressed. I'm going to die. That's not the right approach. The whole point of these things that are happening, they're very useful and everybody should be happy about them, but you should be looking at them. I know it's difficult, but you should look at them from a detached point of view. Again, we get back to our recommendation that everybody who's listening to this view the world from the point of view of an alien anthropologist. You're an alien. You can be whatever kind of alien you want whatever color, whatever shape. You can have tentacles if you want. It's up to you. But your point is that you're here on this planet as an anthropologist observing what's going on on the planet at this time and taking notes and trying to understand the unusual habits and wily ways of the people on this planet and the people who rule, rule over them. And from that point of view, um, well, that's one way to look at it. Another way to look at it is to, in the same way, have it attached, uh, take a detached perspective on the whole thing and see that that situations like the Greek crisis where the powers that be are exposed to a certain extent, where the mask slips, where you have uh, um, statements, for example, from Varoufakis, that he was able to make this statement as a result of the crisis where he said uh, that the EU central power said to Varoufakis and Theresa, and yeah, we know that you're making a lot of sense. We know that everything you say about how you should deal with this or we should deal with this crisis in Greece makes sense and it's doable and all that kind of stuff. But we're not going to do it. We're going to crush you anyway. The fact that that kind of information can come out and be publicly heard and publicly accepted and people can become aware of it is very important. Of course, the end result is they're squished anyway and there is no uh, transition into utopia and the good guys win, but ordinary people on this planet get the the opportunity to see Mm -hmm. the real nature of the beast. And it's through repeated events like that where the mask is slips and the real nature of the people in power on this planet is exposed. It's through repeated events like that, that, and where people get to see that, that real ultimate change is possible. Not in any one crusader or hero or savior coming along and throwing all the tax collectors out of the temple, or anything like that, unseating the cycles in power, but rather the true hope for humanity lies within humanity itself and it waking up to what's actually going on on this planet. Any real change on this planet is only possible if people become aware of the real nature of how this planet uh, operates and and who runs it. Mm. If they can get to see that uh, repeatedly over and over again, then a a kind of a sea change in mass public perception is the
3: real possibility for something changing. It could shift reality overnight. Right. Not by actually changing anything. Not one thing. Literally, like, a large number of people, their perspective of the world shifts, and things they didn't see
4: before Mm -hmm. are now in view, and therefore you'll see the world has changed. Right. And that's why we're actually pretty lucky to be living in the times that we're living in, in a sense, just because the mask is slipping so much more often it seems now and on such a regular basis that it's just, it provides endless yeah, material. The, the mask but, is becoming
3: increasingly intangible yeah. to objective reality. Mm-hmm. The, the two are so discordant on so many issues that this, this gravitational this, this thing, there's this gaps appear, you yeah. know, and, and if you're even
4: remotely paying attention, you go, what the hell? Well, like there was a recent example in Ukraine where Poroshenko and his government um, just introduced a whole new list of sanctions against all kinds of individuals and entities uh, around the world, including some BBC reporters. And of course like RT and but some, some Western reporters, I think from uh, so UK, Spain, Spain and France or the, well, one other major European country, maybe it was Germany. And so they went ahead with this and well, in addition to, uh, all kinds of Russian airlines, Russian journalists, uh, including two Russian airlines that actually weren't in business anymore. So they were a little bit behind on their intelligence gathering for who to actually sh- sanction. But then there was actually widespread outcry among w- the Western press for Ukraine, the Western puppet uh, banning their journalists. So they actually, uh, Kiev went against that decision and said, OK, you know, we we won't we don't want to sanction these guys, sorry, you know we messed up we We didn't realize that uh, that was such a bad idea, apparently um but it, it's it's just it's funny that uh that poroshenko i mean the guy that the u s has propped up and has been supporting and who's just the you know the golden child, the guy that came to the Congress that he came to speak speak at and got all those standing ovations just like Netanyahu or was
0: it, and, yeah
4: yeah and and this guy's banning Western journalists. And uh, so, of course, so he he went against it and said, you know, oops, sorry. But at the same time, he's uh, there was no outcry that he was banning Russian journalists, at least no outcry from those Western institutions. Of course, if you live anywhere else in the world or check check your news from any other source, you'll see that's what's happening. And that it's just as bad to be banning the Russian journalists as it is a British journalist. Hmm. So it's totally hypocritical. But the, f- the very fact that it happened is just its kind of jaw-dropping in a sense, just because. Yeah.
2: Uh, we have Jonathan on the line here.
4: Hi, Jonathan. Welcome to the show.
6: Hey. Hey, how are y'all doing?
3: Pretty good. Um, good. Very good. Welcome.
6: Uh, yes, I, I turned in a little bit late, but I, I'm enjoying your, your conversation. And, um, you know, being in the belly of the imperialist beast here um, in the United States and uh, – you know, I, I think I told you guys a little bit of the outlines of my my story. Um I've been concerned about the environment ever since I was uh like a kid and I got into this industry where we do work on lakefronts and we have to get permits and all that. Well, long story short, um I made a move to test the boundaries of uh this current system. Um you know, I'm 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 naive in a good way, uh but when I became a whistleblower in um, in 2013, um, I've lost everything because of it. I went before the Orange County Environmental Protection Agency. Well, anyway, the, the reason I'm bringing this up and how it is uh, congruent with your discussion thus far is that um, there's just blatant non-enforcement of the existing rules when it comes to the environment. And, I, and I've and i been in this industry, I've been around here in central Florida looking at the lakes and monitoring the quality of the lakes for 25 years, and we're getting algae in it. Um, they, but they, the industry of the turf industry, they continue to put chemical fertilizers not high in nitrogen that runs off into the lakes. So we watch right in front of our own eyes how – everything becomes more polluted and more ugly but then i i'm trying to gauge you know what what kind of feedback do i get from the public well the feedback i got from the system is just to be kicked in the face for even daring to say that they don't enforce the existing rules and everything is getting more polluted but then on the part of the general public um you don't even dare mention like, hey, you know, just keep in mind whatever you put on the ground is going to end up in our don't even mention it because you will be punished on their end as well. They, in general, they don't want to hear it and um, so there's this huge turf industry and everything's getting more polluted and there's nobody, just look in the media here, there's nobody that, well, I'm not going to say nobody, but but because of the power of these industries, uh, the fertilizers, the chemicals, the fungicides, because of the power of these industries, any discourse that calls into question our practices is just is almost totally off the table from the start. And how this ties into what your conversation is today, like with respect to uh, Putin, Obama, Syria, It's just so freaking obvious to anybody that pays attention that the United States is playing, like, a really cynical game by letting uh, the Islamic State become more powerful because their priority is just to do a regime change so then they can control, like, pipeline, gas, whatever, the politics of what is now Syria. And they're frightened of Iran and Syria and Russia Russia making uh, these alliances – but um, I will say I'm a little bit heartened that once again, Putin and Lavrov have just totally trumped Obama and the United States. They they have pushed them into the corner to where if they totally like re- insist on regime change and letting the and letting all kinds of chaos and tumult ensue after the regime change, because a Sunni. Government that's tied to al-Nusra And and IS and all that Dash, all of that will just Totally blow up, there'll be slaughters There'll be total instability So, um, you know It's just amazing to me Either these people are just so dumb And fanatical that they couldn't see how This would play out, or they were Just counting on Putin's been very, very conservative With respect to the United States Witness, uh, you know, Libya For example And um, so they've been very reticent, but the fact that that Russia has been an ally for over 20 years with Syria, they have a base there, all of these people's rhetoric, you know, that somehow it's illegitimate for Putin to be helping bolster the uh, Assad government, it's just so freaking, like, totally off the chart insane, but I step back and I look at my own situation and what I've experienced vis-a-vis the environment, the lake's getting worse, Um, I can bet you I could go to 100 Americans today and just interview them at random. And there might be among them, there might be percent that is, you know, that is astute. They pay somewhat some attention and they know the cynical dynamics going on. The other 90% are just grossly uninformed or they're just totally consumed. They're just totally confused by it. So, yes, I agree with you guys. And, um, you know, when you're saying, like, hey, there's these instances where the contradictions are just so blatant that people, average people, get a glimpse and they, they grow a brain, you know, to see this. But, and then, but like, for instance, on part of what I see here vis a vis the environment, these upper middle class people that put all these chemicals on their lawns, they suck water from the lakes, they watch the lakes get more polluted. What I have found out is that the reason that they don't do something different, it would be because they are being benefited by the corporate establishment. And if you call the part of our practices promulgated and supported by this corporate establishment into question with respect to the integrity of our environment, something so fundamental, it, it would just totally ruin your whole worldview. It could put you on the outs of these economic uh, income that you accrue and that maintains your uh, existence. And um, so anyway, I just wanted to just throw out that, you know, my personal experience with this moment that we're at right now vis-a-vis the Syria, the Ukraine, because to me it's so freaking obvious. And um, the other thing I've been – I'm going to let you go after this, but I've been paying really uh, close attention to the economy and, um, you know, every day I look at people that are critical of, uh, you know, the current trajectory, and, of course, I'm not an expert, but, you know, I do know about the petrodollar and all this. This, this is just going to crash, man. This, this, we are we are on a precipice right now. They cannot raise interest rates. And now that um, they kept talking about it, maybe we'll raise it in a few months, blah, 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 we'll – it, the crunch time came the, the latter part of this past week when they did not raise the interest rates by 0.25%. They have no capacity to do that. We are on a precipice right now. The United States economy is going to freaking crash. and I know a lot of people have been saying that for years, but I think that there's a it's a mistake to believe that things can just keep going on and on and on. And we're kind of lulled to believe that because this shit's been going on for for like a couple of decades, and it just gets more insane and more convoluted Jonathan, and more con. Go ahead. I'm sorry.
0: Jonathan,
2: I was going to ask you, what kind of form do you think uh, some kind of an economic, an actual economic crash that people would actually notice? What kind of form do you think that would take?
6: Well, I think the I think the first. Well, just listening to some of these experts, I think that form it'll take is uh, first uh, uh, deflation. We're not I'm 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 living the experience of barely being able to find work to support myself and my employee from Cuba. He's a great guy. And um so I'm watching like there's less money out there. So there's gonna be deflation. There's certainly not the the unemployment rate is not five point nine percent. It's freaking probably triple that or more. So it'll take deflation first. And then um, when the dollar crashes and then other people that have money, wealthy interests that have money abroad globally, they will start hedging their bets and putting money into the WAN platform, which will be backed by some kind of like something tangible like gold. And then once the um, these treasury bonds start being sold off by these countries, flow back in here. then the then the, the formula it will take will be inflation. Because everything that we consume you know that we import from oil to uh you know the Chinese products and Vietnam, all of that that will be that will be higher um and there will be less money here at the same time you know there'll be less jobs and less money and then we'll we'll experience some kind of deflation, which could lead to a very significant crash and if you think of all the people that we have on food stamps here that get government assistance to help subsidize these huge corporations like Wendy's and Walmart because they don't pay living wages or have benefits, man, the system's not going to be able to maintain that. So this could get extremely ugly very quick. And, um, you know, but I'm just watching this. The contradictions are definitely heightening. I mean, the chasm between United States policy, what they're saying with respect to uh, Russia and Assad, it just makes no freaking sense the why is the United States in Ukraine? I mean, it just looks sillier and sillier as time goes on and um but the incredible thing here is I think that I believe that most people deep down know this stuff isn't really sorting out, but if you have money, you put on into your your ego your 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 relationships with people in the community. You pretend everything's okay. You know Russia sucks, side bad. You say all that, but really deep down, you really you really know that this is a house of cards that's going to crash. And but you just will not come and admit that because you have enough money, you have air conditioning, you have vacations, you have access to doctors. But when shit gets really bad, that's when people's uh, on the surface ego beliefs that they discuss with their friends and families and so forth, that will be a huge transition and people will become more reflective and more critical. But um I believe that until people really get hungry, literally hungry, that we and there's food stamps and all of that, this 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 kind of just goofiness will just kind of continue on, this like pretend this pretend facade and this is the most diluted. Well, I, this is probably the most diluted group of people in one geographical area that's ever existed in the, in humankind.
0: Mm-hmm.
6: And uh, but anyway, that's that's what, basically what I had to say. And um, I look forward to listening to the rest of y'all program. Okay.
2: All right. Thanks, Jonathan. Thanks, Jonathan. All
6: right. God bless. Bro.
0: God bless.
2: You too, bye. bye. Yeah. I mean. It seems to me that any economic collapse would be to a large extent manufactured, allowed to happen. Uh, Of course, it would have real plausible scenarios or, or, or elements to it in the sense of one example being for some reason, you know, hyperinflation in the U.S. where money is no longer really worth anything. Paper money is no longer worth anything. That's one thing that I suppose can be to a certain extent manufactured and it's the kind of straight and Simple and easy way to kind of screw over an economy and create economic
3: chaos well,
2: within the country and and really affect people yeah.
3: directly. You know but that's what that's what ordinarily happens. That's what should have logically followed from the 2008 crisis. Uh-huh. It's it's what they're what they're doing is intervening, mm-hmm. and you have something that they call stagflation, which is higher unemployment but inflation stays low. Mm-hmm. But yes, point taken. It's, it's so they're doing things. To not have that hyperinflation, right. but at the moment they decide, you know what? It's let's just let her go. Right, but something can happen. It kicks in. Yeah. Something else could happen
2: that would precipitate real hyperinflation to come on, on board. Yeah. So the, the,
3: the key thing is that the flow of goods into the U.S. Uh-huh. is in some way interrupted. That's the moment when this shit is hit the fan uh, in the U.S., but globally as well. The entire structure is based on keeping Americans fed well, well and fed. well fed, the entire structure, not just for Americans, it's all built on that. The enormous debt the U.S. holds and the enormous quantity of goods traded to the U.S., there's a direct correlation between the two. Yeah. If there's an intervention to upset the debt or an intervention that physically upsets the flow of goods into the U.S., either or you have the same result, mm-hmm. a collapse from the center out everywhere.
2: Right. You could you could see how some kind of a natural... Disaster could create that kind of a situation if it was big enough, uh, because obviously it's not just when you say about the normal or the flow of goods into the US. It's not just that. I'm not talking here about a situation where, for some reason, uh, exporting countries are countries from which the US imports goods would suddenly say, "We're not going to import goods. We're not going to export goods anymore." You know, uh, like a kind of like a stage. unless they get a better offer. Well, yeah, but I think that's unlikely to to happen en masse. But what I'm saying is the other aspect of it is, the other way it can happen is if the U.S. is no longer able to receive goods in the the same way that it normally does. Not completely, but partially, let's say. I mean, if you had, I mean, they've been talking for a long time about the big one uh, uh, on the U.S. West Coast, you know, the big earthquake that's waiting to happen. And this has been in the news and mainstream news and Fox News, I think, where they had that, Whatever his name is, pop, culturey type, uh, scientist, the uh, seismologist, whatever he is, the Chinese guy, he's Japanese, Japanese, Japanese M- Machu Picchu. Machu,
3: <laughs> no, that's a place Picchu. in Peru. Kaku, yeah, yeah, K- yeah. professor, hair professor guy.
2: Kaku, who's on there, and he talks it. He's been talking it up for like years. You know, and get him on every time and say, "Is it really going to happen soon?" And he's like, "Yeah, it's really going to happen. It's not if, it's when." And he's been doing that for like ten or fifteen years. I mean it just happened earlier this year, you know, where he was on a game that was spread around and stuff. So people have been primed for that to happen and I think they're I mean, I don't think we can we should there's no reason to assume that this is just scaremongering. I think it's possible with, with that massive quake down in Chile just uh, just last week. Um it's possible that, that that could happen. And if it was big enough, if you had a big enough kind of uh quake, for example, in California. California is the most, the biggest economy, the biggest state uh, economy in the U.S. Uh, it produces. It's, it's, California's economy is the biggest uh, of all the states in the U.S. Um, so if that kind of tanked and went down, and California was no longer able, the infrastructure in California was temporarily prevented from actually processing imports or the flow of goods into California, you know, something obviously that wouldn't affect all of America. It's only California that kind of thing could have a, could have a kind of a a domino effect to a certain extent, you know, where that would, that would push this, whatever it is over the edge and lead to something like hyperinflation. You get the impression that it would take something like that, that would then be used to either, You know, let the whole thing just fall apart or that it would, in actuality, cause these kind of the snowball effect or a ripple on effect where suddenly confidence was lost. You know, I mean, an awful lot of what happens in this planet seems to be governed by sentiment. Uh, They talk about market sentiment, what the markets think.
3: Uh, just, how are the markets feeling today? How are the markets
2: reacting to this today? Well, I just talked to one of the markets and he was really pissed off. He was really depressed. He was hitting the bottle and it's not looking good for that economy as a result. All oh, right, You know, uh, but it, it it does to a certain extent seem to be uh, influenced, you know, the whole global economy is influenced by, by what they call the markets and sentiment in the markets. And this is obviously behind this word markets is this phrase market sentiment is actual people or more likely corporations uh, hedge fund managers
3: the cetera. market is happy when wall street
2: hedge funds are happy right when wall street's happy and wall street wouldn't be happy if california's uh, economy took a major hit uh you know wall street uh would you know the index would probably take a, a significant drop uh, sentiment again, you know, people are jittery. You know, investors, hedge fund managers, foreign and and domestic, you know, importers, exporters. Are we going to get paid? All this kind of stuff. You know, all this, you know, sentiment would would jittery sentiment or nervousness would suddenly uh, could could have this effect. You know, where it would uh, snowball, and it may not be good. And, and of course, any another economy can survive something like that. You know, but if the conditions within the US are such that it's being propped up in a very artificial way, uh more so than say other countries around the world, then that kind of a natural disaster could have a much worse effect on, on an economy as fragile or as false essentially as, as the US economy. because um, I don't see you, especially with the Fed not, you know, increasing interest rates recently I don't see them consciously planning to destroy the American economy, for example. No, it
3: almost reads like they're just trying
2: to keep it in a holding pattern. Right, they're keeping it alive, keeping it going, and they will do bleeding many other parts of the rest of the world to keep it alive um, for as long as as they need to. And and that could be basically for indefinitely. Uh, and, And that's why I think something else, some natural... Some uh, act of act of God would be necessary to intervene, which is one of the few things that are beyond their control. Act of God um, would be necessary to actually create this kind of a scenario. But as Jonathan was just saying, has been long anticipated because uh-huh. people are looking at it, and all these analysts and people who know what they're talking about, you know, economists and all that kind of stuff, say this is this has to go. This this can't. This is not sustainable. The U.S. economy as it is today is not sustainable. But yet. They've been saying that for seven, eight, nine years, and apparently it has sustained itself quite well. Nothing catastrophic has happened. They predict it all the time, this year, this year, this year, nothing happens. So obviously, these guys don't understand something about how it is maintained, how the U.S. economy is maintained, uh, and how it can be maintained possibly indefinitely, as long as the U.S. is able to keep uh, the global system the way it is, the way it has been until today, with the U.S. is preeminent within that uh and petrodollar, all that kind of stuff. And this gets into Syria and the Middle East and what the US has been fighting about in the Middle East have been has been an old war and terror, what it ultimately has all been about, which is maintaining US hegemony, which is largely uh economic hegemony. And it's access and control to uh, uh, access to and control over markets, i.e. human resources, i.e., the sweat of people's brows in many countries around the world, that it has effectively economically colonized the infiltration into those countries of major U.S. corporations uh, via military coups, overt and uh, covert, and wars and invasions. And IMF loans. And IMF loans. So that's why the U.S. can keep going as long as the world stays the way it is. And that's why I think, and I don't see, and I see them fighting desperately to maintain that world order, their hegemony, and that's why I don't see it changing, uh, for now, the, in any way, yeah. in, through any human agency, effectively. Mark- I see it as a uh, divine agency must intercede. Thunderbolts of Zeus, uh, or what do you call that rock monster from?
3: Somewhat, from what? From some movie.
4: Galaxy Quest, from
3: Galaxy Quest, yeah.
4: Oh yeah, the the Dark Nod or something like that. I was <laughs> expecting you to know no. that.
3: You are a pop culture sci-fi. No, but I wouldn't expect sit sure, around waiting for the big one. I mean, look what's going on in California right now. Huh. Um, the latest, are that just from two fires, there have been. I think there are a hundred active wildfires right now. Just two of them have forced 23,000 people to evacuate. I think. One valley fire. Where is that near? Somewhere in northern California has consumed like fifteen hundred homes.
2: Fifteen hundred valley girls homes. Valley girls homes. Oh my God! Oh, valley,
3: valley, the valley. Oh, well, there's many valleys in California. You shouldn't joke about it. It's not nice. But it's it's, it's insane. The people are reporting. What was this report we saw where firefighters said they don't understand how it's spreading? Like it wasn't acting like a normal fire. It it started looking around a
2: hut basically a little wooden shed as the origin of the fire this was after it had covered you know 100 square miles or something and they, were, they had uh, they were going back to the beginning that they had put out you know to see uh, why it had started and um, they couldn't understand why it started how it started and also the, the speed with which it spread that it was acting in a way that fires don't normally act um, of course you know We've talked about a little bit about that in the, in the past and the changing environment on this planet, the kind of electrification effectively of um on the planet, a higher charge effectively on the planet. And how that, I mean, it's almost like a new science as to how that may affect fires and the action of fires and other natural uh Elements or phenomena on the planet, you know. Uh, but obviously, it is changing it in some way because if you haven't noticed, the weather has gone bazonkers over the past X number of years, you know. There was a tornado. Tornado is the new normal. Tornado is the new, like, rain in England kind of thing. It's like England is, you know, historically known for its <clears throat> green, lush hills and valleys and. Uh, <laughs> Uh, Sheep and sheeple, so and sheeple. But I mean, really, I oh, I mean, we know I know because, unfortunately, I was exposed to uh, British uh, culture um, a lot when I was growing up, and you know, I watched the weather, I watched the news, and uh, obviously in Ireland as well, and until I was. Until a few years ago, uh, I had never heard of a tornado in the UK or in Ireland, you know. Uh, But starting about four, maybe four or five years ago, max, tornadoes started popping up in the UK. And there was one just last week in Sussex. They called it huge. It was 50 meters wide. Doesn't sound like a very big one, but it's fairly big as far as tornadoes go, 50 meters. Uh, certainly for in, in a place where historically they don't happen. That's just one example of the fact that clearly, clearly the environment on this planet is changing and the climate is changing with it. And I mean, environment, climate or tornadoes included in that, I suppose. Well, climate, climate's the weather, right? We need a new term to describe these things. Fires, tornadoes. Uh, fire tornadoes, Earthquakes. Quake fire
3: tornadoes. <laughs> fire tornadoes that produce earthquake. There was a fire <laughs> in sharks outside LA two days ago it started during a storm that gave downtown LA its heaviest ever single day rainfall which beat the record set last month. <laughs> so the heaviest ever rain was last month and it was beaten four weeks later by a storm that drenched LA and a lightning strike from the same storm started a raging wildfire outside uh-huh. Boom. all in one go. Um, hmm. this, but this is just kind of, just go back to California. So this kind of incremental devastation has the state governor, Jerry Brown, getting up for the press last week. He's on his way out, so he can maybe stay, say some things, you know, are impolitic, i.e. they might cause a panic. But he's saying, we're looking at a migrant crisis right here in California. He kind of doffed his hat to the trumped-up excuse upon Mexican immigration crisis that would, of course, affect California being next to Mexico. But he specifically said that the migration crisis for California is that all these people are coming up from the South and also there's displaced people within California caused by climate change and that's going to increase on a massive scale in the very near future. Now, he was doing all this within the context of mandate, global warming, cause climate change, yada, yada, yada. but But he's he might be brainwashed by that CO two propaganda, but he's he's saying what he's saying based on what he's seeing. The weather has gone mental. Mm-hmm. You know? Well people have gone mental as well. Everything's gone mental. It's only normal.
2: Um just the whole the situation with um Russia, US Two tribes go to war. You know, Cold War revisited. Cold War part two. This time it's personal. Uh, and the way that has evolved and the effect that that, uh, what that has been used for effectively, I'm always torn between thinking or concluding that. This really is just the U.S., uh, the Washington power broker, nutjobs, terrified of Russia kicking them off the perch, kicking the Americans off the perch. And or, or whether it's kind of premeditated, you know, so what I'm questioning here is the insanity with which uh, the U.S. government, Washington, et cetera, are pursuing Russia and trying to push Russia back and defame Russia and turn everybody in the world against Russia, uh, if they, specifically in Europe, if, if they're really doing that because they believe Russia is such a threat or if they're capitalizing on that, they see that they can do that. So what I'm saying is they don't necessarily, they don't really believe that Russia is such a threat. They know that when Putin and Lavrov and and the Russian government repeatedly say, listen, we just want to do business here. We're not a threat to anybody. We're not going to invade anywhere. uh, That the Americans know that that's true. Um, although that in itself could be seen as a threat to the Americans, Russia just doing simple business and making friends with people, because that might take away uh, some of America's uh,
3: control over well, it, it certain does. countries. It threatens yeah. the the flow of spice to the center, right? Which but, which brings their collapse closer, right?
2: Um, although does it? You know, does it bring the collapse closer? I don't know. I suppose it does. We, what we've just been saying, but. The result of it as well is that they are, you know, when you look at the EU countries getting totally on board with this, you know, um, European, particularly Western, but also Eastern, you know, former Soviet states in the EU now and, and you know, France, Germany, most EU nations are all, <clears throat> all got on board with uh, this anti-Russian propaganda over the past year based on the trumped up charge of, uh primarily um, Russia annexed Crimea. Mm -hmm. Now, I don't think any of them actually believe that. I can see, understand why the US would use that. They would also not believe it because they know very well that, you know, 90 plus percent of the Crimean population were ethnic Russians and wanted to join Russia. There was no problem there. There was no no shots fired. There was no potential for civil war. There's nothing wrong. I mean, okay, Ukraine itself has to deal with it. But, you know, so using that to demonize Russia and using it to suggest that their annexation, illegal, violent, forced annexation, which isn't true of Crimea, is going to be followed by an invasion of Eastern Europe and the takeover of Estonia, Latvia, and other uh, European EU, EU member states. Uh that's obviously nonsense, but I don't I don't I don't understand is uh why or whether or not these EU states actually believe that. Because it's all so obvious. I mean we anybody, most other people who are paying attention could figure out that this is crap, this is bullshit. Why, for example, is in in this latest story about um the Swedish uh it was on it was on the news about the Swedes the Swedish government um arming their jet fighters, uh, putting, a, putting a full payload of uh, of weapons on their jet fighters now when they go on their patrols. I mean, interesting that's
3: interesting because Germany
2: just started doing the same thing, or is that who you're thinking of? Well, it was Germany. Germany, yes.
3: Yeah. Sweden, yeah.
2: Sweden's doing other things where they're basically... Uh, Sweden were uh, possibly going to join this new NATO Joint exp- Expeditionary Force, J.E.F., which is a new, basically, NATO uh, army, that is made up of soldiers from European Union member states militaries, uh, and they would be there to respond in a rapid reaction kind of thing. Basically, it's NATO basically taking control of, or trying to take control of, further control of European Union nations' armies based on the threat from Russia. So all of these EU nations are all kind of like apparently governments are all apparently fully on board with this. Oh yeah, Russia is a real threat. Russia is really maybe coming to to invade us, and we really need to you know, jack up our defense spending and buy more American weapons. And, you know, do they really believe all that? I mean, it's just this contradiction between these actions that they're taking and what you could reasonably assume to be true, which is that they know that Russia is not going to invade anybody. They know that Russia didn't annex Crimea. They know that that was something that any of them would have done in a similar situation because Russia had its Black Sea fleet black sea fleet stationed in crimea and it was uh a red line that russia could not uh, allow to be crossed in the sense of uh the coup in ukraine last year uh, and then followed up by booting the russian cancelling the russian contract for its black sea black sea fleet in in crimea that's where they saw it going and that's why they took crimea mm. that's the the, the, the rationale uh, any of them would have done the same thing and the only way they could do that was or they saw that the most effective way of securing that uh, long-term access they had to the Mediterranean through the Black Sea Fleet in Crimea was to make Crimea part of Russia. Any of, them would have done, any of the EU members would have done the same. So they can't see it as evidence of Russian imperialism. And the next step is Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania, Finland, Sweden, then we take Berlin, you know? I mean, <laughs> none of them can believe that because unless yeah. they're completely insane, and I don't think they are. So, But why are they acting as if they are, as if they do believe that, as if there is this real British tabloid, Putin killed my baby and now he's coming for my granny, you know?
3: Uh, they don't believe that. So why are they acting as if they do? Yeah, I think you're touching on something that's uh, at least a couple of hundred years old. Yeah, I don't know. There's been a... It's this, this, this a great this, game. It's the same great previous game. To
2: this they were happy to do business with Russia. Previous to this, European nation states were happy to build yeah. Nord Stream Pipeline. Germany was snuggling up and it was all yeah. fine, all cozy. Putin was faded here and there. They were all meeting with each
3: other and happy. And then some, I think uh, petocracy can upset their rational faculties enough to make them do things against their own interests. It's a bit like a virus or a parasite in someone's mind beginning to exert control over it against its own interests. I think this is something that ultimately it can only be answered at a higher level because it goes through many generations, this East-West thing. Yeah, but I don't know. I think I see you've hit the crux of the issue and how can we understand this rationally here and now? Well, the
2: other explanation is blackmail. But mm-hmm. the NSA was activated and say, OK, it's time, NSA, to pull out all those pictures of uh, Angela Merkel uh, with uh, uh-huh.
3: with that uh, other. Yeah. Now, this accounts person. for the actions of those under. But what about in Washington itself? Are you raised the issue? Do they really believe it? I think they do believe it. There's an
2: argument to be made that they, not that they necessarily believe it, but they choose to believe it because it serves their interest, which is pushing Russia back. Because if they don't push Russia back, they're going to lose very real, very tangible control and power in the world. Like we were just talking about if if, if Russia comes in and makes deals with the EU, uh, really strengthens their kind of economic ties and that kind of stuff. Uh, and if it also inf- comes down into the Middle East, yeah, America's going to lose out. And America's... Hegemony in number one slot is based on its control, economic control, over many parts of the world. Russia is clearly a threat to that because Russia wants a piece of the pie, wants to come in and take some of that economic uh, business away from America. And it's much better suited to do business with other nations on the Eurasian landmass than America is because it can get products back and forth a lot quicker than America can because America is well way over the other side of the Atlantic. So America, yes, can... We can explain that by, yeah, they're just pumping this up, hyping this up like Cold War rhetoric because it served their interests in exactly the same way they did it in the Cold War. Reds under the bed, commies are coming to get you, blah, 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 blah. They did that to justify their own expansion around the world that they are now defending against a resurgent Russia. So back in the Cold War, they established themselves by using the commie threat. Now they are defending what they stole, effectively, are pilfered around the world on the basis of a commie threat. They're defending that with the new commie threat, which is Putin's trying to take over the world, which is basically a commie threat again, under a different name. So they're doing that deliberately. They probably know it, but at that point, pathological kind of of an infection or pathological thinking or or, um, self-delusion or just plain old psychopathology where what I think to be true or what I need to be true is true, and I'll stand up and appear very convincing, convinced and very convincing that I believe this to be true. I believe Russia to be a clear and present threat to blah, 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 blah. Uh, Yeah, but on the EU side, it's harder to explain, and that's why I'm thinking either blackmail, but whatever the cause, the result is that this is uh, the way the EU is reacting on song with the U.S. against Russia uh, is playing into America's hands, playing into Washington's hands in terms of its
3: solidifying its control over the EU. Would, would, Would you leave it open that the Germans in particular are themselves leaving it open? It may seem quite apparent from all their actions that they're fully on board with Washington, But do you leave it open that they may not be? Did you listen to this talk that's going around by the Stratfor founder, Mm. uh, George Friedman? He spelled out a number of things that confirm what we're talking about here in terms of a geopolitical view of the world. And one of the things he dropped in was that we, the U.S., are still unsure of where Germany's position is vis-a-vis Russia. Yeah, and that our greatest fear, in fact, the only threat to our hegemony on Earth, is the unification or some kind of coming together uh-huh. of Berlin and Moscow. Yeah, huh. and that has always been so. In fact, he says we fought we the U.S. three wars over it. Yeah, the first war, the Second World War, the
4: Cold War. Mm-hmm. Well, and now uh, speaking of Germany in the news lately, a couple of interesting stories um, in regards to Syria. First of all, Minister of Defense Ursula von der Leyen um, expressed that there is a mutual interest between Russia and Germany in regard to Syria and possibly collaborating in some way to to bring an end to the war in Syria. Um, a Ministry of Foreign Affairs spokesman said that they were that the German Ministry was open to a joint venture with Russia to end the war. And then the leader of Merkel's own party, this uh, Christian Cho- Christian Social Union Party, Horst Seehofer, um, said that Germany should ally with Russia in regards to Syria. So we're seeing some interesting statements coming out of Germany at this time that might suggest that, like you're saying, Neil, that things aren't so uh, black and white in Germany. There may be factions, there may be like a surface level narrative that they're going along with to a certain extent, but really there are also others that understand what's going on and are kind of working behind the scenes. And we can see, we can see this in any country. Uh, If you, even if you look at Russia, Russia certainly knows certain things, the intelligence apparatus about what's really going on, but they'll still, Play the surface narrative. They'll talk about ISIS. Mm -hmm. They may mention every once in a while that, uh, you know, the West is responsible for certain things, but they'll never come out and just say it's a a total U.S. creation. They go along with the narrative for their own purposes. Mm
0: -hmm.
4: And um, I think that maybe a lot of the EU states go along with the anti-Russian narrative because it's kind of like there's a, a line drawn in the sand it's like, okay, you either step over that line or you stay where you are. Mm-hmm. And for whatever reasons, economic, political, they stay on that side of the of, the, of the line in the sand, mm-hmm. even if they don't necessarily truly believe it, but they have to for, you know, to save face just for appearance's yeah. sake.
3: Mm. So when this refugee crisis exploded, Germany right away was like, oh, totally. Yeah, we'll take a million. Yeah. Oh yeah, sure, sure, sure. Yeah. No problem. No problem. But actually they just closed the border, you know, and they're, yeah, they're well, tacitly the- saying to Hungary, "Cool, mm-hmm. do whatever you want." So, there's. It, I, I think Merkel and her people. I'd like to think. Well, I don't know. I don't give a damn really. But I think they sit down and have these kinds of conversations. I think they think about well, what, how much do, as do as the as other as side as really believe? They're not as, as <laughs> they're not as smart as us. They're not as smart as us. No, but they do. No, they're constantly playing a game of how do they really believe what they just said. It, what do they really know? What do they really want?
2: Well, I think it's, they probably throw their eyes up a lot uh, uh, if if they have these kind of conversations to throw their eyes up and kind of be, yeah, well, that's the US and that stuff again, but mm-hmm. we have to work within it. And there may be some level of blackmail, but certainly uh, I think what that guy from Stratford was saying is, is probably true. And it's probably the answer or the, the reason for the the hysterical nature of the anti-Russia propaganda coming out of Washington, which is designed to... Uh, I think Germany is maybe a little bit too smart and has too many vested interests, like that I, guy like I was saying, with Russia, to believe any of it. Because they see, I mean, historical propaganda for people certainly in the German government and stuff is probably uh, fairly obvious as historical propaganda. But the US has been working other EU nations, particularly. The ones with a more entrenched anti-Russian in the east, in the east, the ones who were formerly part of the Soviet Union, they can more easily provoke their anti-Russian, anti-Russian sentiment not only within the government but within the population.
3: So now influence the
2: government, and that's being used to put influence or exert pressure on the bigger EU powers like Germany, Germany and France to keep them uh, to put pressure on them to keep them away from Russia because Germany obviously has vested interests with uh, established hard kind of hard interest in the the shape of a round cylinder, round metal cylinder that carries gas, a lot of it that keeps all the Germans warm in the winter and other uh, Western European countries. Um, And they have that Nord Stream that's been pumping gas to Germany from Russia for uh, 20 years. Uh, There's another one planned. While all this is going on, they're still progressing with another Nord Stream Stream 2, another
3: pipeline, Gas pipeline coming from Russia into Germany for the rest of Europe. So, I mean, and now that report takes that, on a new light. German jets, full ammo, patrolling the Baltics, rather German than American. It right. may be that Germany is saying to the US, hold on a second here, we'll do the patrolling Well, request,
2: but they're all under NATO command, supposedly. But this is where NATO isn't as uniform as always. No, well, I mean, it's always an American who's the head of it, sitting in in Belgium, you know. But that would be a question where if it ever came to this kind of much-touted, fabled kind of uh, potential Russian-Western kind of military contact in the skies over Europe, that they're always trying to scare people around, the question would be in that situation – if the U.S. wanted to provoke something, if it got to that really worst-case scenario, uh, how would the whole NATO command structure actually work? You know, because, okay, you're a part of NATO, you're in the German military, you've got a German military command that is in theory subservient to the supreme headquarters of the Allied powers in Europe run by an American. That's NATO headquarters in Belgium. But if he sends down an order to, okay, German planes do this, those orders can be... Mm-hmm. countermanded um if necessary, you know there's always that possibility it's not like you suppose like you're saying it's not they don't have complete
3: and utter control it's no. not like they own the militaries of all of Europe in theory they there have, must be if they make a decision at council level, there must be complete unanimity if there's one veto of any country, no matter the size they don't go to uh, whatever action in reality uh the u s commander of Army force for Europe, Hodges, he's going out to Ukraine and doing things unilaterally, and it's getting back to Germany It's pissing them off. Yeah. He's going there and giving U.S. medals to Kiev conscripted soldiers who are out killing civilians in the Donbas. He's awarding them with American medals. I mean, this is, this is unheard of. This is a first, and I think anyone else in NATO who's used to the way things have been, you know, it's a procedure, and this is like stands out as really odd. But it's uniquely American. It is, and uh, everything that's happening now is, is kind of uniquely American. I think the hysteria is a, a symptom of uh, being sort of caught caught off guard by what's happened. And, and the, sh- they're, they're being forced to show their cards, You know, show their hands, show their interests. Our interests are Europe is not to get any closer to Russia. We want to isolate Russia. Everyone's on board, right? And yeah, we're on board, but here's Nord Stream two. You know, it's Yeah. There's a
2: there's another example of um it's kinda of somewhat comical uh, story about um about the US government recently uh, attempting to claim that Russia has increased its activity around Iceland. Uh that they the what was his name this uh, guy um us De- us deputy defense secretary bob Work told defense news that the russians have been have been flying more of their military planes bombers etc over iceland so he comes out and says this and then the um, iceland foreign ministry Released figures and said uh, that's not actually true. They've actually decreased the number of flights that they've been doing. Uh, several years ago, they were. It's actually since they've, they've decreased fivefold in the last uh, seven or eight years. Um, so the U.S. military claims don't match up with uh, Iceland's own figures of Russian military flights over Icelandic space. And uh, so, but of course, of course, the U.S. Defense uh, Department wasn't dissuaded by that. They just say whatever they want. Yeah, Iceland's under attack. You know. And Iceland's like we are. Uh, And then he also added that Iceland is interested in increased military cooperation with uh, with the U.S. And Iceland's foreign minister said, uh, no, actually, the interest in NATO air defenses in Iceland is coming entirely from the U.S. side. (laughs) (laughs) We're not that bothered about it, actually. So you have the U.S. Defense Department saying, yeah, Iceland is like under threat, and uh, Russia's flying all sorts of bombers over it, and they really want uh, NATO to come and help them. And the Icelandic government's like, uh, what? Huh? Sorry? Come again? First we heard of it. So it's like they are it's not just <laughs> – they're really getting a bit uh, lax on their on the propaganda techniques here. They're not even getting commitments from the uh, – from the foreign government to be on song with the propaganda we're going to put out, you know, and uh, they're leaving it open to a foreign government saying, no, actually, that's completely false.
0: Mm.
2: And then they say, shut up, you listen. Russia is coming to get you. Yeah. And we need to put defense, military, missile defense on your territory. OK. I'm like, no. All right. Forget it. Move on. Yeah.
3: Well, the- it, uh, it's just amazing how and we're describing a chaotic world but the, there's actually a harmonious function at work here where the center of power tells everyone that mm-hmm. that country over there we need to isolate it and in fact here are sanctions and look it's having results and that country is now isolated we must continue that isolation on and on it goes and their stated policy in that direction It's having the reverse effect. Mm -hmm. The U.S. is left alone, isolated, Mm -hmm. in its own lies. It's it's well.
4: Speaking of uh, evil Russia, in the U.S., the Pentagon is recently recently has just started beginning reviewing their contingency plans for war with a quote potentially aggressive Russia. So this is the first time they've gone over such plans since 1991, and specifically in response to any potential aggression against any NATO allies. So the U.S. is looking at their contingency plans for if Russia were to basically invade any NATO state or whatever, which is totally ridiculous. Um, It it just ties into the stuff we've been talking about, but it comes very soon after, just days, day or two after First of all, Kerry, uh, John Kerry saying that they are considering the Russian proposal um, of talks on the, on the subject of Syria. This comes after a report that there are only four or five of those infamous um, U.S.-trained moderate rebels in Syria left. This was the group that was originally pretty minimal at 50 or 60 guys that, you know, it cost millions of dollars to train and send into Syria, and then they didn't even do what they were supposed to do. and you know, most of them are gone, dead now. And so, Kerry and the State Department were having trouble figuring, like, answering the questions on why they haven't been successful at all. So Kerry was saying that, oh, you know, we don't trust we don't trust the Russian plan, but you know, we're willing to consider talking to them. And you know, the U.S. conditions were that if if the U.S. were going to talk to Russia at all, the Russian plan had to be exclusively against ISIS. So there had to be no talk whatsoever of fighting any of the other rebel groups. So I mean, the U.S. is kind of like, well, you know, maybe we can get on board, but only if you're just fighting ISIS because, you know, our guys are there too and whatever. But then a day or two after that, <clears throat> um, the U.S. military um, agreed to resume contacts, uh, resume talks with Russian military. And this is after 13 months of silence between the, the militaries of those respective countries so something uh something's going on there it looks like um, because russia has come up with this plan that of course makes perfect sense that if you're going to fight isis you're going to need to ally with assad in syria and if you're really serious about fighting isis that's the only way to do it and it makes sense and just because it's objective reality but of course the u.s can't admit that because the whole purpose was yes. to remove Assad and exactly. obliterate the old regime. So they're basically caught with their pants down here because professed goal, their purpose for being there, is being fully supported by Russia. Yeah. yeah and yeah, so, yeah, yeah. so they, oh, yeah, great. You guys want to do that? Well, we do, too. So let's yeah. do it together. And th- and the U.S. is caught saying, well, well, you know, we didn't really want to do it with you, um, but we don't really have a, a very good reason. So, well, they're being forced mm-hmm. to say
3: to reestablish military contact, to make these more vague, less less de- definite statements in the media, because Russia is just going ahead anyway.
0: Mm-hmm.
3: Increased humanitarian flights, uh, military equipment landing in Syria. Mm-hmm. The noise being put out in the West about Russia's military already being present. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think that was complete disinfo. No. Because there's now a statement from the Russian press secretary Peskov. Yeah, today Russia may expedition. That's sending troops. Yeah, military expedition to Syria if request lodged. Mm-hmm. Is Syria not going to seriously? Yeah. Oh, we're going to pass on that. Yeah. No, I think that's basically the goal. That's the green light. Simultaneously, the, uh, all across southern Russia, they've held the biggest. Uh, Unbelievable scale. 100,000 soldiers involved in war games. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you've seen any videos or imagery coming from this, this isn't sending in some armored personnel carriers to take out terrorists in hand-to-hand mm-hmm. combat. The exercises are massive scale. Uh, yeah, Russia is basically muscling in on the Middle East and saying to the U.S., we're going to make it a reality on the ground here. Mm-hmm. You you want to risk that maybe they're not going to go that It's not, it, it's not of the nature to provoke a fight in any way, but they will keep pushing the boundary and testing,
4: testing the U S
0: mm-hmm.
4: and at the same time, there's a, a headline from times of Israel. This is on one of their blogs uh, on the website. Saying the same thing essentially about China that if asked by Assad, China can basically pledge troops to syria because there's been a, a recent incursion of i mispronounced it the the muslim I-Gourish. I-Gourish? Yeah. um into syria they've they've taken over a town basically, and of course China has a kind of non interventionist policy, but that only applies when uh, Chinese interests aren't at risk. And so this analysis was basically saying that China would be perfectly justified even with its own doctrine, its own military doctrine, to go into Syria if uh, Assad were to ask. Now, so there's these two currents going on, both you're getting the hint that China would and you're getting an explicit statement from Peskov saying that Russia would consider it if Assad asked. So it's basically saying, okay, if Assad asks, China and Russia will be helping them out, and that's that's uh not really what the u s would want this could be a, this could
3: be a world war three scenario mm-hmm. the u s China and Russia in the Middle East
2: <laughs> fighting over oil like all the rest of them have done forever
3: and that's it that's all she wrote nukes
2: flying. Across our heads, we could go out and spot them
3: as they sailed across Russian nukes. Well, I think oh, there's it, another one. It increases the chance of something going out of control dramatically. It's one thing to have a proxy war where your potential superpower threat is over there, but when they all meet in the same small spot, yeah, uh, they're all too scared though to have a, a nuclear war. Apart from the maybe not nuclear, but even a conventional one
2: wouldn't last very long. Though, I mean, the Americans wouldn't last very long.
3: They wouldn't, because they'd be defeated
0: mm.
4: in a
3: conventional war. Mm.
4: All right. Do you think it would come it to that? Do you think it would come to that with an actual open confrontation, or would it be? No more proxy no. forces. Main, no, main thing is, the, is all about diplomacy yeah. and, and democracy and stuff. And you can't no, have it. it's
3: I'm, never again type. I'm not thing, trying so. to tee this up for a World War Three scenario. Uh-huh. I think it's. Yeah, I know. I, I do. I do look at what the Russian war games and just go, "Oh yes, go, go, do something, get this over with." <laughs> but at the same time, like you know, uh, it's just not
4: allowed to happen. Mm-hmm. They just. Uh, could we see the defeat of ISIS potentially?
2: Oh, ISIS. Uh, can that, that'll
3: disappear
4: as soon as the Russians yeah, go we, in. Made, yeah.
2: made to go away as quickly as they appeared. And yeah. if, you, if you remember last year, they appeared uh, as if almost overnight. And it suddenly, well, the media just told us, hey, look, there's ISIS. They yeah. been. And then suddenly there was a narrative created. Yeah, they've been doing this and they've been forming. And it all started out dark we and, and they, they got a half billion when they robbed
3: the, the bank. Yeah, that's how they got all the money. They yeah, robbed 2000...
2: the bank on the way to wherever. It all came out of Al Qaeda. Al Zarqawi. You remember the beardy guy with a with a skull cap who was in the in the news all the time and he was after after bin Laden went to ground uh
4: Al Qaeda in Iraq. He went to Yeah.
2: He he retreated further into his cave in Afghanistan and shriveled up. Um Al Zarqri took over in Iraq. He was Al Qaeda in Iraq and he was the guy with a skull cap and a beard who no one ever saw. Don't know if he existed.
4: Media creation.
2: Uh, He's the one who got killed at least twice. And the second definitive time he was killed, he dropped a one-ton bomb on the house he was in. There's a video of it. And the house just, it was one of those bombs that created a cross pattern. It blew out sideways. And top to bottom as well, you know, and it just, and there were trees around and it just leveled everything within about, you know, a couple of hundred yards there Was nothing left of the house except the big crater. And after that, they produced a picture of him with a little, a little cut on his cheek and said they found the body. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is the kind of thing they passed off on people and people were like, "Oh yeah, but then they can pass anything off on people. You know, nobody, nobody questions it when it's like, yay, good guys beat the bad guys, you know, everybody's just happy to cheer. Uh, But yeah, ISIS came out of him. He was the one who supposedly formed the original core of ISIS or whatever, or the people who became ISIS. And then when they appeared last year, which was basically uh, early 2014, I think, Mm -hmm. um, uh, the media had a narrative. And that narrative was handed to them of how they had formed. So it was completely and entirely manufactured by the looks of it. And they came out of nowhere. And had these wonderful successes where they went into all over Iraq stealing um, stealing U.S. military equipment from the Iraqi army, who just walked away. Uh, apparently, the Iraqi military just walked away uh, because the U.S. had been financing right up until, and probably still are today, financing the Iraqi, well, maybe not anymore, but up until last year, they've been financing the Iraqi military where they've been giving stipends, basically money. To Iraqi uh, generals to disperse, you know, for for per soldier, basically payment salaries for soldiers, and and they left them all of their U.S. military equipment to run the Iraqi military. But uh, apparently, what the Iraqi generals were doing, because the U.S. had more or less destroyed the country and you know left the military in a shambles, or didn't, you know, they destroyed the military and then didn't really create it, but started throwing money out. These generals started taking that money and and firing, letting all their recruits go. So they were getting money for, you know, a, an Iraqi general would get money for a brigade or a platoon or whatever of soldiers, and they would let 90% of them go, pocket the money for the soldiers that didn't exist, so ghost soldiers. So they're basically the Iraqi army, no fault of their own, the country was destroyed and occupied, destroyed, occupied and destroyed for um, uh, over a period of 10 years. And the U.S. just happened to leave this, Large amount of military equipment, Humvees, helicopters, anti-tank weapons, all that kind of stuff, in the country. The Iraqi army was in shambles. It not, didn't know what to do with it, and ISIS apparently just walked in, knew exactly where to go, grabbed it all, and that's how they launched their war. It's it's amazing, an amazing uh, uh, series of unfortunate incidents uh, that contrived to create ISIS and allow it to continually to continue to spread around. I mean, so we have no doubt that they could be made to disappear uh, in the blink of an eye if someone wanted to. And we'll probably see that happen at some point.
3: So the pertinent question is, would the U.S. allow Russia and China to have some of the pie in the Middle East? They kind of did with the Iran deal, at least some appearances. Well, then the story maybe of, this is one step too far. Maybe they'll say no.
2: The story about Iran... Is that the entente with, the, with Iran uh, and the US was about securing Iran supplies, Iran Iranian oil and gas supplies for Europe as a as an alternative. It's this pipe dream, literally and figuratively, the pipe dream uh, of the US to try and again push Russia out of the equation and decrease or remove the EU's dependency on Russian gas and oil by getting Iran to supply it. I mean, they're desperate. They're just trying everything and anything uh, and they don't, you know, uh, they don't understand but they've forgotten about the complexity of the situation. They think they can just force through any last desperate measure to maintain their position in the face of <clears throat> a natural order reimposing itself. A natural order being Eurasian countries cooperating economically and resource-wise with each other. And America's an outsider coming in and trying to stop them all doing natural, normal business with each other. And obviously that effort is doomed to failure. But they have no choice, these people, because they're pathologically greedy. They cannot say, okay, we've had a good run of it. Let's just accept facts because they don't really... Like facts that they don't agree with, or facts that they think may not be facts. It's not really, it it may be a fact now, but what if I bring in a different fact that supplanted that fact? Will that change the first fact? Well, yeah, it does. It's kind of reality creation, right? Mm.
0: Uh,
2: But what about those Syrian refugees? They're all men. They're what?
0: All men. Haven't you heard?
3: I, I I could have sworn I saw some women.
2: Might have seen one or two, but they may are just maybe just dressed up, men dressed up as women. But anyway, the majority of them are are yeah. all men. Oh, wait, two, the, don't have
3: The crisis actors meme has start. No, they're not crisis actors, but
2: it's an army. It's 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 ISIS, an ISIS army. It's all ISIS men, all violent, aggressive Muslim men coming to take over Europe. had not it always been so? Oh, I mean,
3: sorry. No, wait. So this is the latest.
2: Well, it's been going around for quite yeah, a while amongst the right yeah. wing, you know, Pegida type, uh, which is that uh, racist right wing whitey, white supremacist group in Germany. In Germany, who actually has a, last year we had a story on it about uh, uh, an Israeli psychologist was up there as a spokesman for them <laughs> Interest um, at one of the rallies. But uh, yeah, those kind of groups, right-wing, white, mixed right wing, white, makes right white, might mix right, Uh, tape groups in Europe are all promoting this on social media, quote-unquote, and other places to try and argue against refugees coming into Europe. Uh, And there's some, usually in these situations it's not completely manufactured, there is, I think, some evidence that a majority of refugees may be male. But there's an obvious explanation for that, which is that there's a military draft in Syria. Mm -hmm. And a lot of military-age men would be inclined to get the hell out of there before they're forced uh, to join up the military and go and...
3: Well, Turkey Turkey wouldn't have turned them back to
2: face the draft. What do you mean? Well, if they're mostly coming from Turkey. Mm -hmm. Well, but there's a route there for them, you know? They're not mostly coming from, well, they're coming from Syria. They're Syria, military age men, but they're coming through Turkey to Europe, right? Once they're, out of, once they're out of Syria, a lot of them are thinking, well, Germany is, you
3: know, this utopia. Well, the other obvious explanation is that it's easier for men to make that kind of As well. But, journey.
5: Yeah.
2: Over but the military draft is an obvious explanation as well for, for why there would be a lot of men amongst it. You know what uh, Young men, men not married. That's what they're saying. It's it's not families, men and women and children. It there's a lot of single young men,
4: military aged. Right. Yeah, I, th- I think it, a comedy website. I think it might have been cracked. Sent a journalist uh, and a videographer over to uh, some of the European countries where the refugees are to talk to them, and that's one of the things that they said is that they talked to a lot of military aged. Uh, men who were who said that was one like the main reason that they left the country. Of course, it was mixed in with a lot of. It's hard to hard to trust the source because it seemed to be mixed mixed in with a lot of uh, propaganda. But mm. if the if the testimonies were true, that's what some of them are saying. And uh, I read the I read the figure that's uh, two thirds. At least were male, and that a lot of them are military age. So uh, yeah, I think that's a plausible explanation. All right, the refugee crisis is here to stay. I mean,
0: oh, yeah. this is
3: long term. There's a funny, there's a
2: funny story. Uh, you can check it out on RT. There's a funny story about the uh, the world's biggest uh, arms fair, merchants. So the merchants of death were uh, selling their, their weapons in London, just uh, I think over this weekend, um, and uh, a guy came dressed up as death. The big
0: uh, <laughs> sickle,
2: sickle, and the whole death costume, and uh, I had to kick him out. And he ran away. <laughs> there's a video of death running away from an arms fair. Too scary even for him. <laughs> Too much death in there even for me. Um, yeah. It's uh, it's interesting. The whole refugee thing is is to be watched. Obviously, it's just it's pretty sick and disturbing. You know, there's the pro and anti refugee groups are continuing to particularly in germany are continuing to, to get on the streets and protest and just make a miss the point basically you know um, uh if there should be if there are any protests about the refugee situation on any streets anywhere in the world, particularly in Europe, obviously it should be about protesting against uh the western governments who are fundamentally responsible. Mm-hmm. for this refugee crisis. And you may have noticed, but there's a shocking, glaring lack of mention of that one simple fact in the Western media anywhere. I mean, they don't have to write all these long stories, these long, you know, personal interest stories and and and. Uh, Uh, reports on the refugee crisis and talking to particular refugees and charting their their journey and the harrowing blah 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 just keep reporting the simple fact that the only reason there's a refugee crisis in Europe is because the US in league with certain western governments and Gulf state monarchies decided to start a, a phony civil war with external mercenaries in Syria and destroy the country over the past four years and kill 200,000 people and force people out of villages and towns all over Syria because they bombed the crap out of them. And that's why they left. And who's responsible? Well, the U S and its allies. No Simple. end of story, two paragraphs. That's it. Done. Every story over and over and over again.
3: But the liars step in and instead say, they give you the emotional sob story and then fill in the gaps by saying that it's Assad's fault. And the only reason he's still around is because Putin supports him.
0: Mm-hmm. But that's another
2: load of I know steaming horse crap.
3: But it passes muster in the context of all the other big lies. Yeah, but it's just,
2: it's, I mean, it's not even that it's conspiracy theory or alternative media or whatever. Uh, just look back over reports from Western press, the Washington Times, uh, the BBC. You see reports of the U.S. government in league with Gulf monarchies, Saudi Arabia, Qatar, funneling large amounts of weapons and money to nutjob jihadi rebels in Syria to attack Syrian people. Okay, so it's very simple. Those are reports in the Western press of the U.S. supporting nutjobs who attacked Syrian people, forcing them to flee to Europe. Who's responsible? Multiple choice question: America, 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 or America?
3: <laughs> Putin. But that's not how they said it. They said they were supporting moderates. Who but are, they've yeah,
2: even said they in other government. reports, even U.S. government military spokesmen mm-hmm. have said Joe Biden said that you know th- these weapons that we gave and, and the funding that we gave to these so-called moderate rebels ended up in the hands of ISIS and they're defecting. And, and, and they're the most important ones. And oops, we made a mistake. Okay, well, we'll let you away with that one. You made a mistake. But still it's your still fight. your fault. Why is that not in the Western media? It's very simple, very, very simple, straightforward, provable, fact based logic. Why isn't it on every single headline about the refugee crisis? Two paragraphs, three paragraphs at most, explaining that simple situation that is clearly the result, clearly the cause. Of the Syrian crisis, refugee crisis in Europe, no brainer.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Where's the brains?
3: Silence. It, but it's Putin's fault. Weed. It's Putin's fault, Joe. Your response to that is it's Putin's fault. Okay, mm-hmm. fair enough. I'll, I'll, I'll take that. And if you have any further doubts, you're being un-American.
2: One, un, it's a, it's un-American. Yeah, it's un-American to to think with your brain. It's on. It's kind of going to be un-American and on. Un, it's going to be un-Anglo-American to have a brain we're going to scan people for their brains and brains will be you know they'll come up with some evidence that uh people shouldn't have brains you know from a report that brains are bad for your health uh, and it's unpatriotic
4: speaking of putin and new york uh well oh, i just dished it
3: okay is putin going to new york
4: Apparently. I haven't heard any different from previous reports saying he would be.
0: He's
2: going to New York at the end of this month to the UN General Assembly when he's going to stand up and call Bush, or not call Bush, Paul Obama and America a donkey. (laughs) He's going to take a a leaf out of the late Chavez's book (laughs) and say, he's a donkey, and call him the devil, (laughs) and tell him he can still smell sulfur. The Jamila sulphur in this room from when he was up here speaking. We need more people like Chavez, you know. Yeah, no,
0: whatever.
2: Anyway, well, we uh, we we'll call it quits for this part. This analytical, political, social, climatological, earth change, logical analysis of the world this week and move into the more important and possibly more informative pop culture aspect to our show, which as always is hosted by our old friend, Relic, our fellow Canadian.
1: Hello and welcome, kids. It's your old friend Relic here with another gar spunky edition of Pop Culture Roundup, where we'll pull up under the spotlight of the full-service glitzy gas stations of Beverly Hills in our brand-new Mercedes-Benz and see if we can not fill her up with some premium high-op tame gossip about the latest shenanigans of Hollywood's uber-famous elite, while some poor Mexican immigrant humbly cleans our diamond-clear windshield with his dirty salsa-covered shop rag. Alas, the inequities of life on the boulevard of broken dreams. And as usual, I'm coming to you today from my pioneer-themed one-room log cabin on the ice-chilly wind shores of Upper Lake Canada, where the weather around here gets so cold that we can't even use a normal dog sled team to travel about the place. In fact, The only beast rugged enough to pull a grizzled old codger like me across the frozen tundra is a team of twelve giant polar bears hitched up to a sleigh I made myself out of peat moss and galvanized tin. You might imagine it's rather difficult to motivate a, a pack of wild Bears, but all you gotta do, sees tie up a certain fat Al Gore to a big stick and then dangle him in front of the pack leader, and lo and behold, they start running like the wind. Mush, Fluffy, mush. <laughs> Anyways, let's see what the celebrity tumbler gram net has in store for us this week. Hmm, it looks like washed-up 80s pop icon Madonna has been making headlines recently when she told Entertainment Weekly that she's refusing to play any more live concerts in Mother Russia because she and I quote here, doesn't want to perform in places where being a homosexual is tantamount to a crime. Unquote. <clears throat> Sounds to me like Madonna's regular Botox injections must have seeped into her brain because she's so grossly misinformed and most certainly must be getting her so-called facts from the National Enquirer tabloid newspaper. Either that or Fox News, because outside of the narrow-minded conservative America, it's rather well known that being gay is not only tolerated in Russia, but has been protected by law since 1993. What Madonna is probably referring to is the much overhyped gay propaganda law that was passed in 2013 which prohibits the distribution of openly pro homosexual material to small children. Talk about twisting the facts to suit your pro western agenda. Of course, after decades of corrupting young, impressionable teenage girls to play truth or dare while voguing like a virgin, it's perhaps understandable why our aging material girl should take umbrage with Russia's attempt to ensure that its children have an actual childhood by protecting its most vulnerable young citizens from being unduly influenced by the decadent and rapidly decaying Western Empire. In an absolutely stunning display of celebrity hypocrisy, Madonna seems to have no crisis of conscience about performing regular sold-out shows in the United Arab Emirates a country where simply being homosexual is punishable by death. Hell, she even had a Spanish architect design her a luxury holiday home in Dubai that sports a giant living room aquarium filled with captive dolphins. On the bright side, however, all of Madonna's dolphin prisoners have been confirmed to be gay. But alas, they're not very happy. True story. It's also no secret that Despite her selective moral outrage, this pop diva vixen has no qualms about continuing to do business in Russia, as she has recently opened a couple of her lucrative fitness exercise franchises in Moscow and St. Petersburg. These places are appropriately named Hard Candy, apparently is a reminder to her of the days when Madonna still had all her original teeth. Now, Relic here has a a suspicion that the, the real reason the Like a Prayer Singer no longer wants to play concerts in Russia is because she's secretly terrified of Russian President Vladimir Putin. Who apparently is the only political leader in the world who has bigger muscles than she does. Hi, Columba. Papa don't preach, indeed. In other news, 90s sitcom comedian Mr. Jerry Seinfeld made the news recently after a much publicized encounter with the local police force. Apparently the cops were called to Mr. Seinfeld's home after a cranky, nosy, next-door neighbor complained of a renegade lemonade stand that his children had set up on a village street and was supposedly raising money for charity. After one particularly irate high-talking policewoman with a terrible case of man-hands shouted, No juice for you! Jerry responded by calling the officer an anti-lemonite. The conflict quickly escalated after Mr. Seinfeld insisted that he was master of his domain and was clearly collecting money for the poor children who wouldn't get any presents on Festivus. The hyperactive policewoman tried to calm things down by shouting, Serenity Now! And, actually managed to diffuse the tense situation by buying herself a glass of lemonade. Because those pretzels were making her thirsty. And thus, in the end, everybody was happy and gay. And not that there's anything wrong with that.
0: George, you'll just pay a fine and that'll be it.
6: Why did the policeman have to yell at me like that?
1: (laughs) And in our last story for the evening, Newswire Online has uncovered a 1994 article in Vice magazine, which shows a picture of then-popular imbecilic cartoon duo Beavis and Butthead, flying passenger planes into New York's Twin Tower skyscrapers. And this was seven years before the events of 9-11. Well, I'm no prognosticator and don't know much about the media accurately predicting the future, but all I can say about that is is that scenario seems at least more probable than the official version of events. 19 Arab hijackers, my ass. And that brings us to the end of another show for this week, kids. Ooh, looks like some Jehovah's Witnesses have just showed up at my door. And damn it, I'm, I'm all out of shotgun shells. Well, I guess I'll just have to throw a, another true believer on this fire. Say until next time. Your old friend Relic here saying always remember, keep your feet on the ground and your eyes on the stars.
2: All right, thanks for that Relic. That was very informative as usual, uh very
3: entertaining as well. Um He really cuts through the the propaganda, like
4: yeah, it yep. like it is.
3: Says it like it is. Like an ice pick through the Lake. I don't know
4: meters of ice through yeah.
2: some through some mushy some slushy snow um, yes so uh, we're going to leave it there for this week folks um, we will be back next week with what will we be back next week with
3: another episode of behind the headlines on a particular topic
2: or we may be talking to someone you never know It's so unpredictable, Uh, so keep your eyes on the pewter to find
3: out. Until then, have a good one. See you next week. Take care.